Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 415. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I will tell you what's coming today's show. First up is we have an interview with Zoltan Istvan, the first to the singularity. Zoltan is a presidential candidate for the 2016 elections. The Transhumanist Party builds the future. But a great interview with Zoltan, all about the kind of singularities and our worries and our fears. Laid, laid, laid bare. Then it's the main fiction, and it's a story by Anthony Cardinal, Chasing Satellites. Then right at the end, we have, or not right at the end, we have Amy H. Sturgis looking back at genre history. Oh, very, I got me, I got me Christmas card off Amy. It came in the post there. It was actually a fab one. It was like a normal postcard, you know, like you would just send on, like on holiday, but it's Alfred, it's science fiction, Alfred Bester, Demolished Man, like a postcard. And I understand why Ames has done this this year, do you know what I mean? And it's, I mean, it, like you say, it's not, it's not Christmassy, but it's just, it's lovely to have something. This is Ames' Christmas card, it was, and I don't, I don't even, you know what I mean? I'm like, typical, you know what I mean? I, haven't, I don't even send any, no one gets a card off me, so it's just, and it's not for the one, the kind of thing, and I, you know, I, I just don't believe, I just, I never kept myself into gear, to me quite, I missed my bloody father's birthday the other day. Aye, tell it, tell us about it, everyone's told us about it. So <laughs> that's going up the end of the show. So yes, we have an interview kicking straight off, and it's by Zoltan Istvan. And like I say, it just—it's great. This and again, come over the, the the website or look on your phone there now. You can download. You know, Zoltan's has given us like a, a kind of little a freebie to kind of so you just can have something and, and have a look at because, like I say, Zoltan's running for the, the seat on the you know the U.S. president's no less and. He sent over this kind of little bit of a kind of document what, you know, Zoltan's putting out there to tell everyone about his kind of transhumanist party, you know. And they're going round in this thing called the uh, Immortality Bus. And the thing's huge, man. You know what I mean? It's just like this would bring England to a standstill, this bus. So have a listen to this. Like I say, check on your phone, check on your website there now. You can get your little freebie off Zoltan. Are we still heading in? I guess the right direction for singularity. Well, you know, I, I think we are heading into the right direction for the singularity. But you know, the singularity is a, a kind of a crazy concept. This quasi spiritual idea that maybe um, one day we're going to merge so fully into machines that we're going to uh, basically become a, a totally different type of entity that really changes how we how we perceive the universe i mean if we are a machine intelligence and we're a thousand times smarter is that really um 
still ourselves, it might be a totally different consciousness. But that said, yes, I think we are indeed heading for uh, the singularity still. You know, Zuldan, you made a great point in your article, and I'll link to that article as well. That you, and I never even thought about this. You know, I just thought, you know, we'll all get there at the same time. But you made this point that it probably could be like one country might, you know, sneak it, sneak the, the winning line before anybody else. What's what's the implications of that? Well, you know, and I'm not a big fan of, of one country reaching the singularity first because it, it does seem sort of morally dubious to me. But the reality is that, you know, it's it's probably one country and I, I may even be one company. And, you know, that's quite dangerous because this we're not talking about, you know, something that, um, you know, is just like, oh, he made a this person made a new cell phone or a new uh, a gadget. We're talking about something that could swallow the universe, something that could change human experience forever. So it's very possible that one country will come up with an artificial intelligence and a singularity will probably require an artificial intelligence in order to be reached. And with that, you know, artificial intelligence, this one country will start to, you know, upload people or connect people directly to this um, type of advanced machine. And then who knows what happens in virtual worlds? And that's sort of what the singularity is, is this idea that you are now, you know, 10,000 times smarter or maybe even a million times smarter. And if one country controls that kind of power, um, you know, they may uh, use it for only their people. Uh, they may use it for only their, you know, the, the elite. I don't know. There's a couple of conspiracy theories you can throw out there. But <clears throat> in general, it's something that's so monumental to the human race that I sort of feel it should be shared. But that doesn't mean that it necessarily will be. Do you not think, and I'm not you know, trying to be too flippant here, but eventually we'll all get there. Do you know what I mean? And it's a bit like, I'm, I'm trying to kind of the best words, a bit like the internet coming, you know, like it eventually it'll roll around and it gets to your village or it gets to your home. You know, is it not just going to be like that where eventually we'll all be just in there? Well, it, it, that's a great, wonderful idea. But, you know, one of the things I've written quite extensively about now is this concept of the singularity disparity. And what it is, is the idea that not all singularities are equal. In fact, the very first people who reach the singularity will likely make it so that all other singularities that take place can never be as powerful as that first singularity. And, you know, naturally you would do this. For example, if you create an atomic bomb, you always want to create a stronger one than your your enemies because it allows you that sort of extra power. And especially in terms of computer software, you would want to make it so that no one else could potentially develop a kind of experience that's as powerful or as unique as the one you have created. And again, so this is what the singularity disparity says, that the first people that reach the singularity will make it so that no one else can reach that level of singularity that others have reached. So this idea that everyone will reach the singularity, I don't think is necessarily the case. I think um, the very first person who created artificial intelligence will probably make it so that no other artificial intelligence will ever exist on the planet um, just by either, you know, hacking into it or creating viruses or whatever, because it's such a, I mean, imagine if the military created an artificial intelligence, it's probably first mandate is to say, make sure no other artificial intelligences exist, because that would give it a, a stronghold in, in its power. But on the, I mean, I'm just like devil's advocate here. Is it not, do we not need a bit of a governing body then if this is going to be so wild, like an almost like a wild frontier? Do we not need someone there to kind of govern govern what happens? Well, I, and I totally agree with you and uh, not the devil's advocate at all. In fact, it's the most sensible thing is this this kind of stuff. We're talking about artificial intelligence, reaching the singularity. 
is so powerful for all seven plus billion people on the planet that this is way beyond a government, way beyond a patenting system, way beyond um, you know anything that I think is individualistic. We must consider it from the whole of the species because it affects every single person. So you know, I uh, I'm actually the the founder of the World Transhumanist Party, which is this idea that you would use a governmental body uh, to become the first democratically elected governmental body to run uh, the world. And we would definitely need, in my opinion, to let, let go of national boundaries, let go of our, our you know, national identity in order to harness this technology for the benefit of all. Because, it, like I said, I just cannot imagine if we remain so individualistic that some of the lead people or some of the, you know, I get, I don't know if I want to say lead, but just wealthier or whatever people are going to allow the rest of the world to have access to this brilliant technology. And this is such monumental technology that really we need a governmental body stepping in and saying, everyone has access to this type of endeavor. Everyone has access to this type of technology if they want it. Of course, many people won't want it, but everyone should have access, equal access to it. How is Zolan, how is your, your campaign going? So, you know, the, when I started my presidential campaign as a transhumanist about a, a little over a year ago, I did not have, uh, you know, such ambitions that it would grow as big as it's grown. But it's really become a, a very popular campaign. Um, it, it, it's receiving a ton of media attention. And um, I'm, I'm a little bit caught off guard by that in a very pleasant way. At the same time, I, you know, I don't have any real chance of winning, of course. But it's nice that people are starting to say, well, you, well, th it's true. There's so much technology that's changing the human species um, that we do need to have candidates that are running on those types of platforms. And hopefully those candidates can influence the, the other mainstream candidates who might be able to be a bit more tech savvy or more science savvy to, uh, to get the word out there that, you know, it's not the same game politics anymore. When you have designer babies, when you're 10 years or 15 years away from artificial intelligence and then maybe 20 years from the singularity, this is a different type of political system that needs to, to be handled. And I need, I'm, I'm doing my best to try to tell some of the mainstream politicians like, hey, you really need to consider transhumanistic uh, ideas and you really need to consider how fast technology is changing the human race. You know, when it comes, because I'm a great believer in that as well, when it comes, will it, will it be quick? You know, I mean, we keep on talking about like the first country in there, kind of maybe hamper things, but do you think when it rolls out or when it happens, the actual take up will be quick? Well, I, I, so, you know, I think it will be. I think ultimately the way I see a singularity unfolding is that we're going to have to have a sort of artificial intelligence or a, a super intelligence that's already been created. But I would only advocate for creating an artificial intelligence of, you know, something really smart that the human being can directly tie to either through cranial implants, brain implants, or through some type of kind of matrix system where it's not just a machine that goes alone into the singularity, but it's a whole bunch of human beings. And again, I wouldn't advocate for one human being. I would advocate for a body of human beings, maybe like, um, a hundred, uh, sort of think of it sort of like a, a space, uh, a space, uh, expedition where you pick, the top 20 astronauts, or except in this case, be the top 20 human beings, and you send them all together at the same time into the singularity, tied into this artificial intelligence, and then ask them to report back to us. It's no way what I would want to let just a single person go, and it's no way that I want to let just a single artificial intelligence go. I think we'd want to represent all types of, uh, you know, uh, diverse uh, nationalities, races, religions, ideas, politics, 
get everything in there at once and uh, let them all go and tie to this artificial intelligence and then hopefully enter the singularity. And yes, I believe it'll be a very quick process, probably in a matter of minutes, uh, the growth of um, this superintelligence with human beings tied to it would uh, could grow exponentially. It's funny that was Zola. That was going to be my next question. W- would it not have been better just for you know one poor soul to try it first, just so we can all kind of step back and just see what the outcome was? But I guess you know one person, a hundred people, is, you know, is the same really. Well, yeah, and I think the key is if you have a bunch of other humans going in at the same time. And again, I'm I'm imagining it'd be one giant machine. And uh, then, you know, around that machine, you'd have 20 or 30 people all, you know, tied in with their brains, directly uploaded. And then that way you have all these human beings hopefully balancing each other. Because, you know, for example, in the movie Transcendence, essentially, uh, you know, the the protagonist reaches the singularity at the very end where he can kind of control matter and he can make plants grow and stuff like that. But that's very dangerous to have just one single entity. I would hope that there would be a bunch of entities that might balance each other make sure not one person falls off the horse and tries to do something evil and uh, you know if you have a good uh, representation of humanity you'll probably protect humanity so uh, I think that'll be the way to do it though of course who knows that one uh, crazy scientist in his own uh, you know private laboratory might be the first to do it and then we'll we'll all find out the hard way one day in the news <laughs> I'm just I mean I'm just kind of throwing questions here at you Zulam, but I'm, I'm wondering you know would it be like a, a two-way journey could you come you know is there do you think there's kind of possibilities of coming back or do you think it's more once you're over there you know or what happens to your body when you go over there there's loads of computa- you know computations about the singularity i'm just wondering do you think there is a like if you go you can you can come back well so i think the the one thing that a lot of people forget is the very first thing you would probably do if you uploaded your mind into a machine or into an artificial intelligence is you'd probably create clones of yourself immediately as just a safety precaution. Now, maybe those clones would be trained to sleep or something like that. But um, so you'd probably always have multiple selves from the very first few minutes of being uploaded into a machine. Um, and of course, that, it's through a machine we'd be able to reach the singularity. Now, the real question is, what happens to your biological self? Is it the same person, um, you know, because it just has a normal human brain that's left outside the machine. But, you know, this person that goes into the machine that uploads themselves will probably become drastically different through experience, even in five minutes, than the person, uh, you know, than the human body. So maybe you'll meet yourself later, you know, uh, but it'll be a very different person. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to become very comfortable as a species with not just having one of ourselves, but having multiple versions of ourselves. And some of those will live in the singularity. Some of those will live in the singularity and also maybe be on like off mode or sleeping mode just for you know safety precautions. And then some of us will just also have human bodies just in case we ever just want to go back or just know that it's out there for safety precautions. So it's a complicated question to think, what happens if you want to come back? I, I think we're going to split our personalities into many different uh, you know, portions of ourselves so that we actually are many different people all at once and there'll be different, different actual selves all at once. You know, Zoltan, you, you said in your article, or the article I was reading about that, you said most people actually probably wouldn't choose to go. Do you know what I mean? Is, is this still the case that you believe that? Well, I think I think right now, if you ask that question, most people would say no. And the reason is because of, in fact, what I just answered, which is that this idea of you becoming a different person, once you've uploaded your mind 
it's not like you've left your old body behind. Your old body is still what it is. It's still there. It probably just disconnects itself from the machine and says, look, there's another version of my brain running around in the virtual world. And, um, you know, so I think a lot of people don't like to have two versions of themselves. So what's going to have to happen is culturally, we're going to have to become comfortable with this idea that it's okay to have different versions of ourselves. And in fact, I've advocated for this before in other articles where I said, you know, one thing I'd love to do is have another version of myself because one version of myself might protect me from making stupid decisions. It's a, you know, Abraham Lincoln called this the better angels of our nature. Imagine if we always had a kind of a, a second Zoltan sitting on my shoulder saying, hey, do this or don't do that. Or, you know, hey, it's go down this street. There's less traffic or, uh, you know, write this word in that article. It'll sound better. We might enjoy having multiple versions of ourselves. So I think this is going to be very scary for many people in the future. But I think once we get over that, everyone's going to probably embrace it. And then they'll have parts of themselves that go off and visit the singularity. And maybe that'll be like a heaven or something. And then there'll be parts where that just probably stay in, you know, in this physical world and uh, go about having children and, and doing whatever else they, they do. I mean, you, know, you mentioned children there as well. And that's, you know, I'm sure it must be further down the line, you know, the ch our children's children's children, they'll be born in there. Well, yeah, you know, and, and the real question is, if we are not biological entities, if we, for example, uploaded ourselves into uh, a machine and then therefore we've reached you know we start reaching the singularity through that artificial intelligence would we as non-biological entities still have that drive to have children and um you know I, I don't know i think one of the reasons we have children is because it's it's in our dna that we want to procreate but you know the 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 dna of a of a up uploaded mind well of course it won't be uh, dna anymore it'll just be algorithms and we'll probably say to ourselves you know, I don't need to have a child in virtual reality. I don't need to have a child in the singularity. I don't, you know, I'm myself part of, you know, this all-encompassing universal power because I think that's sort of what the singularity is, is your intelligence keeps growing to such a point that having children, having another intelligence may not even appeal to us or we may already become all those intelligences at once. It's very speculative and kind of metaphysical, but I'm pretty sure that people are not going to be having children in the singularity and then that's something that's reserved for the biological world so if, if not children and where another you know side of our humanity where does religion fit into this because surely as well that would be just dissolved well uh, you know I, I as as some people may know i i'm an atheist one of the first atheist presidential candidates going and so i am not a big fan of religion at the same time, I grew up as a Catholic person. Uh, that's how I was raised. And uh, I know that the singularity sounds very religious. When you actually look at it, it's almost like a, a heaven or an afterlife. You've reached this great moment. Now you've merged with all this intelligence and power, which might be called God. So a lot of what I would call Christian transhumanists or other types of religious transhumanists believe that the singularity is actually a merging with God. And um, at that point, uh, I wouldn't call it that, but I understand that when you're talking about something like the singularity, this accelerating intelligence that will become, you know, a million times smarter than we are, there is something that becomes very spiritual about it. So maybe we will become quite different entities, though I'm hopeful that formal religion and some of the dogmas will be dropped as we become much more uh, uh, wiser and grander spiritual selves, and we can understand things from a much more rational, technological um, point of view. 
Zoltan, one more question before I, I let you go, sir. You know, Verno Vinci kind of, he put a date on it almost. You know, like I think when he said it was like 30 years. Have you got any kind of time scale for this, you know? Well, so I think first off, it really has a lot to do with government, as we discussed, you know, earlier on, is because I think at some point the government's going to wake up and say, this is incredibly dangerous. This is no longer just, um, you know, uh, humans fighting humans or national, you know, being having different nationalities or whatever. We're talking about human beings disappearing into machines and having all sorts of new types of powers in these virtual worlds. And those virtual worlds might become so powerful that they can translate into the material world, which means that someone who reaches the singularity might be able to come back and just completely swallow the entire earth. I mean, that's quite possible if they if they have accelerating intelligence that's exponentially growing every second. So, um, you know, it, it, it becomes very touchy. And I think at that point, the government will either say, well, we, we can't do this. We have to make it so that no one can ever do this, or we have to make it so that it's much more regulated. And that's why I think artificial intelligence is such a very hot topic these days is um, it's become this idea that if you can reach it, it opens up so many different things. You're going to be able to change science. You're going to be able to change technology and the speed at which we grow with all these things. But at the same time, if you start uploading yourself into machines and becoming super powerful in, in these types of worlds and worlds that can reach back to the material world, that's incredibly dangerous. So I think what's going to definitely happen at some point is the government's going to have to regulate the the path that we all – uh, find and move towards achieving the singularity and maybe even outlaw such a thing as not in the best interest of the, of the species itself. Now I'm not saying I want that to happen, um, but I, I can easily see some kind of moratorium on artificial intelligence for just the same reason. In fact, it's the same reason if AI got a hold of all the nuclear codes on the planet and could rewrite all the nuclear codes, it might change the global political landscape overnight. And the same thing can happen with the singularity. So we're going to need a huge amount of regulation and hopefully a world government body that says this is good for the species or this is not good because it becomes a very dangerous thing to let just a handful of people um, enter into this kind of mind uploading uh, sphere where they then can reach a singularity and can control virtually the entire universe potentially. Zoldan, it's, it's been lovely, you know, listening to you there, just kind of opening up, you know, sharing and the, the wonder and the possibilities of what are out there, you know, or what could be out there, you know, not too far in the future. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. There you go. Big thank you to Zoltan for coming on and kind of just sharing some, you know, some of his thoughts and his kind of visions and everything like that. It's And hopefully I'll get Zoltan back on, like I say. He's putting out some great stuff there on the singularity. And as soon as I did the interview, you know what I mean, I, I realised there was another post by Zoltan. And it was just, all oh, right, that would make another great interview. I don't like kind of pester him too much, you know what I mean? But he's got some great, like, you know, he thinks about this a lot, do you know what I mean? And... It's, it, it is, it's one of those kind of topics that it does make you think, do you know what I mean? What happens if someone does get there first, do you know what I mean? It's like, close the door and stop the party, do you know what I mean? That's, that's not, a, it's not very nice. But, like I say, a big thank you. Like I say, pop over to the, the front of the website there, or any part of the website, you know, on on this kind of post, and you'll get your literature by Zoltan, for, he was running for the kind of, the transhumanist party, you know, to presidential candidate do you know what i mean and like he says he's, you know he, he knows he's not in with a chance of sitting on the, the the old throne should i say but it makes people aware of like it, 
it seems to be racing towards it. Do you know what I mean? It's just it's getting quicker and quicker. I'll tell you what I noticed as well on the show last week. I, th- I think I used the, you know, when I, I separate in the shows, I think I used the wrong, the wrong, I think I was, I used the wrong sound, to be quite honest. There we go. Yeah, we carry on regardless. I've only been doing it 10 years. Do you know what I mean? So next up is Anthony Cardinal with a story called Chasing Satellites, which originally appeared in Beyond the Sun. Anthony R. Cardinal, his first published work was A Hero History of Marvel Comics, The Invaders of the Late... Lamented, amazing heroes. His short stories have appeared are forthcoming in Shroud, Galactic Games, A Thousand Words for War, I like that title there, Willard and Mabel, Chelsea Station, Battle, Space Battles, Full Throttle. Worst the kind of stories. In 2014, he edited The Many Tortures of Anthony Cardo, and which is where kind of, 22 authors Apparently, tuckerized him to raise money for American Cancer Society. Andy, well done, well done, sir. Well, amazing job. So, and like I say, just you know, a story there just kind of it, it hooks me. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I kind of love. Do you know what I mean? I've, there's a link on there for Andy's Twitter sign there, so you can go over there and say hello to him as well. Story is narrated by Ricky Lacoste. We've had Ricky on before, and Ricky just does that full ensemble. Just Brilliant, to be quite honest. Just look, Ricky's voice is lovely. I'll give you a little kind of heads up about Rick. With reverence to genre fiction audio, he has been a regular reader for Pseudopod over the years and also narrates the voice acts for the No Sleep podcast. And he's been on Tales of Terrifying. Like I say, we've had Ricky on once before as well. In early 2015, produced, narrated and wrote the music for an episode of Cast of Wonders on which he's now a staff as an audio producer. Got your work cut out there. Not for Cast of Wonders. Ricky just be an audio producer. And actually, mentioned this as well, his 13-year-old daughter, Isis Lacoste, is also credited with Pseudopod, No Sleep and Cast of Wonders well, there as well. So big all-around family, family entertainment. <laughs> well done there, Ricky. Just lovely to have you on. Like I say, just... The full ensemble here. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Chasing Satellites by Anthony R. Cardno. Narrated by Ricky Lacoste. How the hell did this happen? Zimmerman was ranting at Werder, the new kid, when Milne reported for his shift in the communications hub. One of the tallest humans on Orpheus, Zimmerman, would tower over the shorter, stockier Werder, even if the kid hadn't been sitting rigidly at his console. How the hell did what happen? Milne asked, around a yawn born of too little sleep. Parenting a tween-aged child on Orpheus was no easier than it would have been back on Earth. We've We've lost lost contact contact with with Earth, both men replied. The anger in Zimmerman's voice, in rough counterpoint to the timidity in Werder's. How long ago? Stifling his second yawn, Milne crossed to the beverage station for some coffee. Wu, his shift partner, was already there, looking equally exhausted. Milne cocked an eyebrow at him, silently asking, Another heavy drinking night? Wu's strained smile was answer enough. Six hours. Werder's answer went a long way to shaking Milne's lethargy. Wu's eyes widened a bit, too. 
six hours. You didn't call me. Who did you call? Zimmerman. Werder shot a sideways look at his trainer. Zim puffed his cheeks out like he was going to interrupt, then thought better of it. He said it was probably just solar interference on their end, like the last time, and that I should log and monitor it. So, I, I did. O okay, but for six hours, you didn't think to call it in again after, say, hour two. The last time this happened, it only lasted an hour and a half. I, uh, Werder turned slightly red. Making the freckles on his face stand out even more, and mumbled something Milne had no problem understanding. I fell asleep. You, fell asleep. <sighs> he put the half-made coffee down with a bit more force than he'd intended, and stalked to his own console, bringing it online with a series of swift, sure finger movements. Kid, transfer me the data so I can figure out how much of a problem we have. Werder grimaced, hunched his broad shoulders, and started tapping at his own console, haltingly. Milne tried not to roll his eyes. The kid knew the layout and presets of the console, but was clearly flustered by Zimmerman's reaction. He cast a quick look at Zimmerman and Wu. And what have you two been doing here since you got here? Why is Werder's the only console up and running? Trying to figure out what the hell the kid was thinking. Fallen asleep. Give it a rest, Zim. Wu's voice barely made it out of the beverage station. Every word tinged with hangover. We've all done it, even you. Not for six hours. Let it go. Milne had no patience for Zimmerman's posturing. Of course, Zim's reaction was over the top. He was the one who had proclaimed word ready for solar shifts. Part of the problem was rushing kids out of school and into training, a necessary downside to where they were as a colony. We need to figure out what to do. Not waste another hour berating the new kid. No, I'll take care of that while you're fixing this. Milne sprang from his seat and snapped to attention at the new voice, mirrored by Werder. Zimmerman was a second slower, and Wu came to attention only with a slight wobble and without spilling his coffee. Commander Foley stood in the hub's doorway, arms crossed, and an unusual. But not uncalled for. Scowl on her face. Werder went pale, and blushed at the same time. Something Milne thought a physical impossibility. Foley walked in and pulled the door shut behind her. Situation. Commander, the kid here dropped the ball. Not you, Foley interrupted, and Zimmerman's mouth stopped moving. She turned to Werder. You. Werder's mouth worked soundlessly for a moment. He cleared his throat <clears> and started again. To his credit, the kid didn't stammer once he got going. <clears throat> uh, sir, at zero、uh, one hundred hours, the communications channel with Earth read normal. Not much chatter, but coming through clear. Thirty、uh, minutes later, there was no chatter at all, and and a staticky background. Per protocol, I logged the interference. At zero two hundred hours, the static had increased, so I called Lieutenant Zimmerman. He reminded me of the previous combreaks cause and ordered me to continue monitoring and logging. Why didn't you call Lieutenant Commander Milne, <sighs> sir? 
As you know, Lieutenant Zimmerman is my trainer and immediate superior. As he was not overly concerned about the break, I thought it inappropriate to interrupt Lieutenant Commander Milne's night with his husband and daughter. Family first, sir. <laughs> Respecting the prime rule. Foley had a slight smile. Very good, as far as it goes. But six hours is an unrealistically long time to monitor a comm break without a follow-up report. Sir, Lieutenant Zimmerman is correct that I shirked my duty. By 0300 hours, I had fallen asleep at my console. I have no good excuse for... We'll discuss that later. Foley turned to Milne. Behind her back, Werder visibly deflated. <sighs> Status? Milne sat back down and reviewed the data streaming in from Werder's console. A scan of just the first hour's worth of data showed something Werder should have noticed, and that the others certainly would have. The problem's not with Earth or solar activity. The freaking transponder satellite isn't where it's supposed to be. He slapped both hands on his console in frustration. I can't pinpoint where it is, but I can tell it's moving erratically. We could lose it. But even if we don't, it's too far out of position to do us any good, even when Earth is in proper alignment again. Solutions? None that are optimal. If we try to course correct it from down here, without knowing exactly where it is, we're as likely to send it spiraling into the void as crashing into the surface of Orpheus. And if we don't resume communications... Foley shook her head. Earth will assume we finally succumbed to the more hostile elements of this planet and write us off. As if they haven't done that much already, Wu grumbled. Ten years, not a single supply ship, just encouragement to thrive until they can spare resources. Thanks for nothing, homeworld. Milne knew that Wu was not a negative person, except when nursing a killer hangover. Foley knew it, too, and she rounded on him. Stow the fatalism, Lieutenant. It's unbecoming of an officer in front of the ranks. Is that true? Werder's eyes were wide. I've grown up here because Earth refuses to send help? It's complicated, kid. Despite being best friends, there were times Milne would like to smack Wu upside the head with a blunt object. Look, you're military now. You're going to hear things the civilians may not know yet. Discretion is key. Think about how that news would affect the colony. Family first, right? Yeah. Family first. Werder didn't sound as enthusiastic about the prime rule at this moment. Suggestions. Foley brought the conversation back on track. Only one I can think of. Milne took a deep breath. We go up. Zimmerman to hub. We have achieved orbit. 
The shuttle had been equipped with enough tracking sensors and automatic relays for the hub to know exactly where they were, but verbal verification made the crew feel better and assured the folks on the ground that they were still alive. Locking trackers onto the transponder satellite, Wu reported. Zimmerman was piloting. Wu was locating. Milne would make repairs, if necessary, before they repositioned the satellite to the optimal position. Zimmerman refused to move the shuttle until they set a destination. Got it. Wu sent the satellite's new coordinates to Zim's console. From the data, Milne could see the satellite was moving slowly away from them. The shortest route is in the opposite direction, Zimmerman grumbled. Better than circling the entire planet, Foley said from the hub. Turn around. They moved in a controlled stationary rotation, and then on minimal thruster power based on Wu's input. Milne watched his console and waited for the forward external cameras to pick up the satellite so he could begin damage assessment. We have camera visual, he announced moments later, manipulating and transferring images from the cameras to the hub before the shuttle was in range for actual line-of-sight confirmation. The quicker they analyze the situation, the better. Damage? Foley asked over the headset. Checking now. Milne kept his focus on the visuals, streaming across his console. One distended antenna? For sure. Hard to tell. But I think it can be corrected. He zoomed in for a close-up, cleaned up the image as much as possible, and transmitted it. Several dents, all in the same basic area surrounding the antenna. No other surface damage visible from this angle. Eye visual confirmation, Zimmerman interrupted. Milne had not noticed the slight increase in speed Zimmerman had applied to close a distance faster without overshooting. We will have close contact for extravehicular activity in three minutes. <laughs> Milne bit back a comment about how easy it was for Zimmerman to say that, since it would be Milne going out there. Dense and broken antenna, Foley cut back in. More escaping ring debris? Looks like it, Milne confirmed. We'll know in a moment if uh, what we're seeing is the worst of it. Does anyone realize today is the 10th anniversary of the crash? Werder's voice caught them all by surprise. They'd almost forgotten he was in the hub with Foley. In the morning's commotion, the anniversary had slipped Milne's mind. But how, he didn't know. And your point is, Zimmerman barked into his headset, we're kinda on a time limit up here, kid. Debris escaping the ring brought the Poitvin down. We haven't paid much attention to the ring since, resource being limited. So how do we know this isn't an annual event, like, like meteor dispersal? It's worth looking into, Ensign. Milne was impressed that Werder had made the connection before the rest of them. Maybe the kid did have a future in this line of work. Think you can analyze the stored transponder records from the past decade and find a pattern? Might help in repositioning this thing if it's still working. On it. There was a slight click as the kid muted his headset, 
so he could work his console without interrupting communications between shuttle and hub. A private message popped up on Milne's console. Nice job. Effusive praise from Foley. Milne typed back. Someone did the same for me once. And then, with a small nod, set himself to figuring out what tools he was going to need to salvage the antenna. The antenna was in worse shape than it had appeared from a distance, and Milne sweated some of the repair work. In the EVA suit, with all the tools attached to him, via leads, he didn't need to worry about sweaty palms or things flying out of reach. Sweat dripping in his eyes was the problem. He rewired the antenna and bent the metal back straight again. If anyone was annoyed by his occasional grunts or sighs, they wisely kept it to themselves and left him to his work. Still, it was taking too long. When it was time to screw the antenna rod back into the base, it took three tries to get it to thread correctly. Each time it stuck, Milne bit back a curse and took a breath before unscrewing and trying again. If he jammed it and couldn't get it loose, the mission was a bust. On the third day, it stuck for a moment and then slipped past like he had stripped the threads. That time he did shout an expletive, louder than he'd intended. Four alarmed voices asked if he was okay. Fine, fine, he answered. <sighs> I thought I screwed up. But the antenna's reattached and okay. He paused and then uttered a sad laugh. <laughs> Get it? Screwed up? Well, screwing an antenna in? Lieutenant Commander, how much more work do you have to do out there? Foley's voice was measured, but Milne knew she was concerned when she addressed him by rank. Let's run the diagnostic on the antenna, he answered, before I start looking for other problems. If it's not working, there's no sense checking for other damage. Woo, ping a signal to the antenna. Milne waited in silence. Without visual displays, he had no way of knowing if the satellite received the signal. Pinged and pinged back, Wu said moments later with noticeable relief. I sent the usual connection protocol, and the satellite responded appropriately. Hub, are you reading anything from the satellite? Affirmative, Werder answered. Reading static, but much less than last night. So, the patch job isn't perfect, but at least the antenna's working. Milne took a moment to collect his thoughts. Commander, I have a suggestion. Go ahead. We should start broadcasting the message we recorded now. We know the transponder's not malfunctioning. We know the antenna's at least temporarily fixed. By waiting till... We bring the satellite back into optimal position. We're taking a chance. Based on the remaining static, Werder is hearing, let's not risk it. 
even if it's not beamed directly at Earth, at least it'll be there for ships to hear. Ensign Werder. Fully ordered. Begin transmitting the message. Shuttle, check to be sure it's going out. Milne pushed back from the satellite, extending his tether so that he was in the path of the outgoing signal. The problem with these tight-beam transponders was that the recipient had to be in virtually direct line with the source, no matter how far away, to receive the signal. Within a moment, Commander Foley's pre-recorded voice came over Milne's headset. This is Commander Foley of Orpheus Colony, formerly of the ESS Poitvin. If you hear this, our transponder satellite is failing and we've lost communications with Earth. Please relay this signal. Our colony is not impaired or failing, but we need help re-establishing communications with... There was more to the message, but it cut out suddenly. Milne, get out of there! Werder's voice cracked mid-shout, and Milne had the urge to slap his hands over his ears at the kid's volume. Shuttle, reel him in! What the hell are you on, Werder? Zimmerman interrupted. Satellite sensors are picking up a debris storm in the ring, headed outbound. Coming your way now! So much for the statistical analysis. Milne finger-toggled the suit thrusters and pushed towards the satellite, even as he felt the tug of the tether line pulling him in. Milne, what are you doing? Wu's words came over in a rush. Grabbing the satellite. If we can pull it out of the way, we can take it with us, circle around and reposition it. Screw that, Zimmerman replied. We're getting out of here now. Wu, pull him in double time. Milne laid his hands on the satellite shell and felt for a good grip before Zimmerman hit the thrusters and pulled him away. The tether and the satellite pulled against each other. His grip held and the satellite started to follow him. And then all hell broke loose. Small bits of debris zinged past his faceplate. He pulled his head back, closed his eyes, and held his breath, waiting for an impact that didn't come. He opened his eyes again and watched more pebbles pass, imagining he could hear the whistle the way someone who narrowly avoids being shot hears the whine of a bullet as it misses. The sweat on his forehead poured faster as his heart rate soared. He blinked rapidly to clear the sweat and stop the sting, but his grip still held, and the satellite moved with him as the tether brought him closer to the shuttle. The amount of debris passing him increased in frequency, speed, and size. Debris ricocheted off the satellite shell and dispersed in every direction, although the shell itself protected him from the rebounds. It wouldn't take much to puncture both layers of his suit. He whispered goodbyes to his family. The others were putting out so much chatter he doubted they heard. The satellite vibrated as larger debris struck, and Milne tightened his grip. How much further to the shuttle? They'd been reeling him in forever. A sharp pull from behind jerked him sideways, and one hand slipped off the satellite. What the? Milne! Wu sounded panicked. Debris tore your tether. Let go of the satellite so we can haul you in before it rips through. Milne bit back another curse. The choice was taken out of his hands as a large piece of debris caromed off the shell, straight up from Milne's position while the satellite pulled to his right away from Orpheus. Once his hands were loose, the tether yanked Milne towards the shuttle. More debris hit the satellite dead on, 
pushing it farther out of reach and out of orbit. As he was pulled backwards, more debris impacted his suit, surely creating minute tears in the outer layer. Thankfully, nothing punctured the inner layer. Yet. He twisted so he could see the shuttle. Stay still, Wu yelled. You've got about two strands holding you to us and a couple of feet to go. On my mark, curl into a ball and you'll slide right into the airlock. The pause was the longest of Milne's life outside of waiting for Alexander to accept his proposal. There aren't enough stars in the sky to swear by, Alec had responded. There are more than enough stars around Milne now. Mark! Milne pulled himself into a ball, gripping his knees with his hands. He sped up slightly and forced his eyes to stay open so he could see the upper edge of the airlock gliding past him. He untucked as the door slid shut. Several pieces of debris ricocheted off the closing door and into the room, one pinging off his visor and starting a spiderweb effect. Milne held his breath and waited for the door to be shut, and the telltale hiss of oxygen filling the airlock chamber before he released it. The visor hadn't completely cracked, but the suit would never be usable again. He was out of the suit and barging through the bridge in seconds, leaving the suit crumpled up on the floor. Zimmerman swore under his breath, fingers flying across his console to determine the fastest, safest landing vector. Wu turned from his console long enough to punch Milne hard on the arm. You deserve a punch in the face, but we don't have time to set any broken bones. Not that it'll matter, since there's a good chance we're crashing. Milne slid into his seat, buckled up, and accessed his own console. He was still getting data streamed from the satellite as it slid further and further out of range, still broadcasting. Zimmerman, what are you seeing that we're not? Word it was all calm and professional now. We've lost the satellite data stream. Yeah, well, we've lost the satellite. So that makes sense, Zimmerman barked. There's a ton of debris headed our way, and the pieces are getting larger. We've got a problem if we don't get down fat. The shuttle shook with the impact of something large. All three men grabbed their consoles. No alarm sounded to indicate a hull breach. The shaking stopped after a moment, and Zimmerman resumed a course to take them home in one piece. The shuttle continued forward and down towards the atmosphere. There was another impact, and a stronger one. Milne gave a sideways glance to Wu's console, catching the bright red of the impact on a schematic of the shuttle, surrounded by yellow markings for smaller impacts they were not feeling. The number of yellow markers worried him. Enough smaller impacts could be as troublesome as a few larger impacts. Smaller debris could also settle into the engines through the exhaust panels. Milne returned his attention to his own panel. The signal from the satellite continued to diminish in strength as the distance between them widened. He boosted the gains as much as he could, and the signal flared for a moment. The satellite was moving off at a different direction from the majority of the debris exiting the ring. That could be a blessing, in that the satellite would not suffer any further immediate damage, but also a curse, as the new trajectory was pushing it farther out of line with Earth. As the signal weakened, he tried to think of other ways to boost the connection. At least they'd started broadcasting. Other colony ships might drop out of warp in a location to pick up that signal and relay it back to Earth. The cabin lights went red. Klaxons sounded, warning of an imminent breach of the outer hull. Personal protective equipment now! 
Zimmerman shouted over the alarms, just as Foley's voice came over the radio. Scuttle mission and bring yourselves down immediately! As if we had a choice, Wu grumbled before toggling his mic open to the planetary frequency. Werder, give me a beacon to lock onto outside the colony. Screw looking for a soft landing. We're going to be lucky to land at all. All three pulled on protective suits and then continued working their consoles. Zimmerman trying to pilot away from the larger pieces of debris heading their way. Wu laying in coordinates for a landing that would keep them well away from the colony itself if they came down explosively. And Milne collecting and relaying the diminishing data from the satellite. Zimmerman cut off the alarms and the chamber, still washed in red light, was eerily quiet. We know we're in trouble. We need to hear each other better, he said to no one in particular. With the alarms off, the number of direct hits and partial glances the shuttle was taking from debris came more noticeable. Milne had hoped they were heading away from the storm, but it seemed like they were now in the middle of it. Every reverberation through the shuttle shook them in their seats and made them tense up, expecting the breach alarm and their suits to seal. The breach alarm never came, but the shuttle took its most violent hit yet, and a different alarm sounded. Engine rupture! Zimmerman shouted. Milne could feel the shuttle swinging around as forward momentum ceased. Another piece of debris hit the rear end of the craft. Thrusters! Firing! Wu answered. Werder, forget that beacon. We can't control our descent beyond what the thrusters are capable of. He paused, swore, and we're leaking what little fuel we have left. There's a good chance once we hit the atmosphere, we'll be leaving a flaming trail for you to find us by. Get yourself to the ground, Foley responded instead of the kid. We'll be waiting. Hands worked consoles feverishly. Wu tracked the fuel. Zimmerman fired the thrusters, pushing them down into the atmosphere. Milne gave up tracking the satellite data and tracked the debris storm, which they passed out of as they moved closer to the planet. They could feel increased resistance on the shuttle as they entered the atmosphere. The shuttle became harder for Zimmerman to control, even before the fuel reserves ran out. Milne switched the sensors over to the positioning data to figure where the shuttle would come down. We'll come down outside the colony by several miles. But not on anything soft, Wu added. Not in that location, no, Zimmerman concurred. Foley is on her way out to your projected landing site, Werder's voice came in over the line. We've mustered every crew member we can. Hey, kid, Zimmerman interrupted. Yeah? Sorry I was so hard on you. And and so easy, too. Should have spent more time teaching, less time blaming. (laughs) You'll have plenty of time to make that up, Zim. The fact that Werder addressed him by his nickname wasn't lost on Milne. And the rest of you, too. Still, just in case, Milne chose his next word carefully. Tell our families we love them. And you do everything you can to keep comms running in case Earth ever does get in touch. Got that, Werder? Yeah. Werder sounded resigned. Yeah, I do. Good. Now stop talking to us, and let us try to set this thing down without a big explosion, okay? Yes, sirs. And then there wasn't time to think. Just react. As the ground drew closer, Zimmerman pulled the nose up, and they landed on the shuttle's belly. But the shuttle had been built for controlled vertical landings, with landing gear deployed, not for landing like an old Earth aircraft. 
Milne passed out as the shuttle began an uncontrolled skid across the flat plateau in front of them. He came to in a hospital bed, wrapped in bandages, his blurry right eye opening after several blinks. The left forced closed with something heavy and unmoving. Something immobilized his neck. But he tried to look to his right anyway. A headache spiked behind his eye in response to the movement, and he gasped. Welcome back. It's been a rough few days. Werder moved into his line of sight. Milne tried to speak, but his mouth was too dry. Your family's right outside. Doc had a feeling you'd be waking up soon. You and Wu have been recovering at about the same rate, and and he came to an hour ago. Z- Z- Milne tried to speak again. I'm sorry, we got you and Wu out before the fire got you. But Zim, he was crushed by his console. I, I'd rather let Foley give you all the details. I, I, I'm going to get your family. Milne grabbed Werder's arm as he turned away. The kids spun to look at him. Milne tried again. Satellite's gone, man. But we got a ton of extra data from it thanks to the boost you gave the signal before it slipped out of range. It was still broadcasting. Maybe someone will hear it and chase it down. Meantime, our days of chasing satellites are over. Can't afford to risk any more lives up there. We're here. This is home now. Let me get Alexander and Renee. Family first, right? Milne nodded and let Werder leave. Family first, he thought. Orpheus Colony would survive, thrive, or fail on its own. This had always been true, but now it would be a known reality. At least the planet was hospitable, the colony strong and secure. With the comm satellite gone, they could put their energy and resources into exploring the world they were trapped on. Milne's daughter pushed through the door and rushed the bed before Alexander, trailing behind her, could rein her in. Milne grunted with the impact, and his good eye blurred with tears. It hurt. But it was a good hurt. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Andy's. Andy, thank you so much. Do you know what I mean? Thank you. It means a lot. You know, lovely to have you on. Nice new stories there. Fantastic. And Ricky, what can I say, sir? Hats off to you. Are you a whiskey or a drama or something there for doing that? Excellent, excellent. So before we get into Amy's little story, or Amy's little story, Amy's little segment there, you, when I was doing the interviews you know, with Zoltan there, I'm just thinking I haven't done any for... A few days, at least a week there now, and it's just like a little rundown. It's me, me phone got, you know, if anyone kind of listened to last week's show at the end, and thank you for those that did and kind of, you know, emailed in and you know, mentioned it on kind of out there. Yes, you know, thank you so much. Yes, I survived. we survived. But my phone went, lost my phone, and hopefully it's going to be, you know what I mean, it's, it's in there getting fixed to, you know, just getting the bloody thing, but... 
it's amazing how I'm just lost without him. And I've got this phone, and obviously it's, it's a kind of modernish. When I say modern, I'm probably talking 10 year old. They give us like this kind of rented higher thing phone. And I just cannot. Because how I work, you know, if you, if you ever want to know how I kind of work, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but I have Flipboard as an app and I have Pocket as an app. And I've just got Flipboard kind of just so geared towards kind of finding quirky stories, quirky things going on. And I just save it in Pocket. And Pocket's lovely to kind of just go back to it and kind of, you know, read it at your leisure. Like, and that's basically, you know, it's a bit like, well, I was going to say it's like Evernote, but Evernote's, I sometimes, I love Evernote, you know, but I kind of sometimes battle with it because sometimes I kind of get the things out. Do you know what I mean? If I just want to print something to kind of, you know, and put the specs on and have a look and read it and get into it, an article and, you know, try and get into it so I can get some questions in me in my head. But so that's how I kind of do it. And like I say, I haven't been doing it. Normally I like to kind of get off a few in, in the kind of bag. So fingers crossed we get this sorted out, this little, you know, bump in the road and we can get and get back to doing some interviews because we've still got some you know i'm going into middle of january do you know what i mean so oh and there's a thing as well i've wrote it down just so i don't forget because you see i'm forget everything obviously <laughs> because it's all in my phone do you know what I mean? but we're away next week it is the kind of christmas i think it's the 23rd next week so we're away then. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna let you know. I'm gonna let Jeremy off there. You know what I mean, unchain him from the desk, and you know, and actually, he's picked, he's picked the right time. To, submissions are now open for Starship Sova. So this is your chance. Get your stories in. Do you know what I mean? We're not doing a show, but Jeremy is kind of right away there. Do you know what I mean? There's lots going on, and that's actually two more bits, bits of news as well. We have two new members on the Starship Sofas board, you know what I mean, or in the kind of in the workforce there. We've got RM Ambrose, who is the intern slush reader. <laughs> you know, just open for all that stuff that's gonna come. Ralph's way. Just, you know, a big thank you to Ralph for kind of stepping up and kind of, you know, taking on the kind of slush pile and helping Jeremy out as well. Hopefully it's gonna be a great team and we're gonna get some fantastic stories. So Ralph's there, sir, welcome aboard and helping me is Robin Bradshaw. Now Robin just has been here probably when I switched on Starship Sova, Starship Sova, Robin was probably just scouring the internet and found me, you know, within twenty seconds. Robin Robin's married to David Bradshaw, the music man there. And I'm bringing Robin in to be the content marketing manager. <laughs> Does that sound basically Robin just Robin is so clever, man. It just kind of straight away knowing or spotting mistakes and just making writing, you know, especially my writing because I write like I talk. Do you know what I mean? And it's just something's all over the place. You know what I mean? And I was talking about this about copywriting, you know, like story writing. I think for me personally, is an easier. You know, you just let you, yeah, you've got to have a certain structure. Do you know what I mean? But just the normal basic storytelling writing. It's imagination where copywriting, for me, it seems there's so many narrow, you know, restricted fields and you've got to get it right to, to get your message over. And it's, well, like I say, you know, it's a kind of, it's a, almost a talking, you know, you've got to be direct, you've got to be to the point where look when I talk, you know what I mean? I'm backwards and forwards like all over the place. So Robin is now on there. Like I say, content, I'm making sure I'm kind of not, you know, um, what I'm putting out there is all up to, you know, up to scratch and sounding great. And we've got 
some huge projects coming for 2016. Do you know what I mean? Kind of probably one of me biggest ever. You know what I mean? But we'll do a like a meta show and tell you all about that. You know what I mean? But if you keep you know getting the newsletter, you know you will be in there and you'll you'll find out about it. But let us, let's just say a big thank you to both of them for coming on board. But let us get on with Amy H. Sturgis. Looking back, genre history, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. And as you may recall, the last time we met, I was talking about some of the science fiction influences, particularly literary influences, on Star Wars. And I talked a bit about Isaac Asimov and E.E. E. Doc Smith and Frank Herbert, and particularly talked about the Jedi. Well, today I would like to talk a bit more about some of the inspirations for the Jedi, because I am one excited little fangirl looking forward to The Force Awakens. So, we talked at the end of my last segment about how, in a way, the Jedi could be considered to be samurai Bene Gesserits, or Bene Gesserit samurai, the connection between the samurai background and the warrior nuns, if you will, of Frank Herbert's Bene Gesserit order in Dune. Now here I would like to give a big virtual mental High five to Terence McMullen, whose essay, Elegant Weapons for Civilized Ages, The Jedi and Warrior Monks Through History, from the collection Star Wars in History, is the fuel on which this particular segment is running. Now, it's worth pointing out that Star Wars in History is a collection for which George Lucas served as a consultant, so this interpretation has his stamp of approval. Though, to be fair, George Lucas can be somewhat of an unreliable witness when it comes to his own inspirations and the history of his ideas. But with that caveat, we move forward. History did provide the artists and storytellers and creators of Star Wars several examples of warrior monks to serve as models for the Jedi. Now, I'm going to make some wild oversimplifications here. This is not thorough history, um, but I'm just going to highlight how some of these examples are Star Wars relevant. Let's take for our first example the Shaolin monks in China, who are still around today. They founded their temple in 495 and put it near the imperial capital, not unlike how we see the main Jedi temple located on the capital world of Coruscant in Star Wars, with easy access to the Senate chamber. The original goal of the Shaolin monks was to study and promote Buddhism. And the story goes that an early abbot, Bodhidharma, thought the monks were not physically strong enough for the kind of serious, rigorous meditation that their life demanded. It required a lot of stamina, and so he instituted a, a regimen of physical education and exercise, which he based on something he already knew, on martial training. And through this system, through this education, the monks became ultimately the most respected fighters in all of China, developing what we in the West tend to think of as Kung Fu. 
This martial prowess was meant to build stamina, and ultimately to allow those monks to protect people who were weaker. In other words, they would fight only defensively, or as Yoda would say, never for attack. There are some direct parallels here. For instance, in the seventh century, a Shaolin monk died, leading thirty monk soldiers on a mission to save a princess. From a planned political assassination, shades of the Jedi mission in Attack of the Clones, and like the Shaolin monks, the Jedi could both fight on their own on the front lines, be something of a deciding factor in a fight just because of their unparalleled abilities, but they could also lead regular soldiers. As we see the Jedi do as generals in the Clone Wars, there are stories that Bodhidharma accomplished some very Jedi-like feats, like floating across a river balanced on a reed, or appearing to a student several years after his death. The Shaolin monks also study Qi or Qi, the energy that flows through all things and seeks balance. And it's no coincidence that the Jedi who is most mindful of the living force, Qui Gon Jinn, is named Qui, like Qi. Another example, moving from China to Japan, are the samurai themselves. Okay, technically they're not monks, though they were separated and trained at a young age. Later, they did go on and pursue personal lives. They established homes and had families. But in his essay, Macmillan rightly points out that they shared a similar philosophy about death, about fate, and about their purpose with the Jedi. The samurai really came to the fore in eighth-century Japan. They started out as armed servants of the government, but they also later evolved into advisers and diplomats. Sort of like we see the Jedi acting as consulars. There are three major ways philosophically we can compare the two. First, the samurai devoted themselves to the pen and the sword in equal measure. What did that mean? It meant they had to balance their military abilities with achievements of what Obi Wan Kenobi might call a more civilized age. This could be philosophy. It could be literature, calligraphy, art. In the same way that the Jedi are scholar warriors, and they also use the elegant artistic lightsaber rather than mere blasters. Also, the samurai followed the Bushido code, just like the Jedi followed the Jedi code. And while the samurai weren't monastic, they were required. By their code to follow a frugal, sober life of honor and service. In fact, samurai means those who serve. A third comparison falls in the practice of Zen Buddhism, which, if you'll forgive the oversimplification here, teaches that in order to gain true understanding, we have to let go of the conscious mind that wants to divide the world up and. Put things in little pigeonholes. The world is really interconnected, and we need to foster openness and awareness, a sense of no mind. 
and this creates a fearlessness of death. If everything is interconnected, there is no death. And that's what we see in samurai warriors, those who could, by following their code, set their heart right every morning and every evening, and thus live as though the body were already dead. In other words, live freely, in the same way that the Jedi face death with purposeful and serene calm. We can think of cultivating the no-mind idea as what Obi-Wan means when he tells Luke in the Millennium Falcon to let go your conscious self and act on instinct when sparring against the practice droid. And for that matter, when Luke is on the final approach to his target on the Death Star, use the Force Luke, let go Luke. Again, I'm painting these parallels in very broad brushstrokes, but I hope they're illustrative of the fact that the Jedi do have some historical foundations, or at least inspirations. The third I'd like to talk about are the Knights Templar, the European Christians originally based in Jerusalem. You've seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, right? Enough said. After fighting for years in the so-called Holy Land during the Crusades, a group of knights who were tired of war, who wanted to atone for what they perceived as their sins, chose to form a group, right? So on Christmas Day in the year 1119, the warriors vowed poverty, chastity, and obedience and became warrior monks of the church. Their very first role was defensive, that is, protecting pilgrims on the road. They would go on, like the Jedi, to serve as both super combatants on their own and as commanders of other forces. And they also, like the Jedi, saw themselves as fighting battles on two different planes, physical and spiritual. They weren't just fighting to protect people or property, following the commands, but they were also fighting for good and against evil. The notion of good and evil, of course, was contextualized by their religious faith. In this sense, they were faithful servants of God against the unbelievers, but of course, the other side thought the same thing about themselves. But the point is, it was a dual vocation, battling physical enemies and spiritual enemies. Think of this as sort of the light side and dark side of the Force, the constant threat of manipulation and temptation that the Jedi faced, and the question of the means used to achieve ends. The Jedi had to be fierce and aggressive enough to vanquish their enemies without being pulled to the dark side by impulses like anger. Now, this situation led to some creative thinking. In the case of the Knights Templar, for example, Bernard of Clairvaux justified the Knights' warfare because they weren't actually killing people, something that Christian scripture clearly does not support, thou shalt not kill, but rather they were killing the evil that just happened to be inside people, so the people themselves were collateral damage. That requires some mental gymnastics there to understand the ethics of all of that. But to be fair, the Jedi did some creative thinking too. For example, in the Clone Wars, they went on the attack, even though they were supposed to be only defensive, and they led an army of combatants who did not consent to be combatants. So lots of ethical issues there too. 
The biggest comparison between the Jedi and the Knights Templar is that both were betrayed similarly by trusted rulers, who not only betrayed them, but also engaged in a publicity propaganda smear campaign against them. The Knights Templar were betrayed by King Philip IV of France. He was broke, and he noticed that the Knights had money. They'd grown powerful and a bit complacent. Plus, they were an independent body inside his kingdom, and that made him feel a bit wary because he couldn't control them. They were, in a sense, a threat to his power. So, on Friday the 13th, that's why we consider it an unlucky day, Friday the 13th of October 1397, he sent out a secret warrant to arrest all of the Templars in France. And that was followed by a campaign of outright slander and lies that destroyed the Templars' reputation. This is just like, in a lot of ways, once Senator, then Emperor Palpatine, giving that Order 66 to execute all of the Jedi, while he made a related smear campaign against the Jedi, saying that they were trying to overtake the Senate and put themselves in control. Now, according to legend, some Knights Templar went underground, not unlike Yoda on Dagobah or Obi-Wan on Tatooine. And over centuries, they became a secret occult cabal that were focused on the question of revenge. Maybe we'll see something like that with the Knights of Ren. We don't know yet. It certainly sounds like the Sith before their return. What do we do with these historical parallels, besides point out that Star Wars has, again, deep roots, inspirations well worth following back to their sources? Certainly these parallels shed light on a life of service. Remember, again, the word samurai means those who serve. The idea of the Jedi following a higher calling, with a spiritual as well as physical dimension. It certainly underscores that these institutions, these groups, were originally intended to keep the peace and protect the helpless. There's also this Jedi notion of non-attachment that also it fits with Buddhism, it fits with the monastic idea. The Knights Templar were to dress in white to advertise that they had chosen a life of chastity. It also fits with the idea that the Jedi don't go around having families if you had Jedi marrying Jedi and having baby Jedi, pretty soon you'd have a super race or super species. It's a kind of eugenics program in the making, and that's not what the Jedi were about. And thus the Jedi did not have families, but instead force sensitives were identified at a young age and brought to the temple. Now, I could go on and on on a tangent about the issue of the Jedi and the Jedi perspective on attachment, because we see in the Star Wars films that attachment, in a way, leads to Anakin's downfall because of his selfish love, not wanting to lose those he cared about. But ultimately, attachment is what saves him as well his son's attachment to him, his son's determination not to destroy him, but to try to save him, and his own attachment to his son, Luke Skywalker. 
provides the momentum, the reason for his redemption. Well, with that, I will close my two-part look at the Jedi. And for this one in particular, I do want to give a hat tip to Terrence McMullen and his scholarship. And I also want to give a big thank you to all of you, my listeners. I appreciate your time and your attention. I do wish you the best of holiday seasons and the happiest of New Year's. And I look forward to talking to you again when we look back into genre history. Thank you. And there you go, Amy Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, have a a wonderful Christmas, and everybody, you know, whether you're, you're into the kind of Christmas or not, you know, just have a, a lovely time over these kind of festive holidays or over just over the holidays. If you're working, which actually, uh, what am I? I'm five nights shift <laughs> over New Year. Got the Christmas off, but I'm kind of five nights shift. Oh man, and we go into industrial action as well at work. It's just a nightmare, man. It's just like all managers are in there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> need free time. So, yes, listen again. Have a, a wonderful time. We're off next week. Come over, you know, if you want your kind of little gift of Zola on there. Join the newsletter, anyways. You know, there's like I said, there's going to be lots happening. We are off next week. I've just said that, haven't I? And then we'll be back on, I think it might be the, the 31st. Jim's, I know Jim's got his his article is now sitting ready and waiting, I think, to be quite honest. So we will see you then on the, it, it will be the actual, the 30th of December. And like I say, just, you know, have a, a, a lovely, wonderful time over the Christmas holidays. You know, we are Thank you so much for kind of, you know, listening and kind of being, like you say, we're stepping into the kind of, into the brink of like, not many podcasts have done that, you know, like 10 years, man, 10 years, 2016, let's make it a memorable one. And it it doesn't go without, you know, obviously, you know, get the Patreon going, get the campaign going, support with that way as well. Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Stories of Evacuation Procedure Machine. Shuttle set for This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.